0: Welcome to Jewish History Matters. I'm Jason Lustig, and I'm joined today by Shana Weiss, who recently visited us at the University of Texas at Austin, where she gave a talk about Israeli TV titled Black is the New Black, Ultra-Orthodox Jews, Israel, and the Globalization of Television. We were really excited to have her and to share her presentation here on the podcast, as well as a conversation about Israeli TV, the representation of ultra-Orthodoxy, and why this matters as we try to put Israel in a global context. Shana Weiss is the Associate Director of the Schusterman Center for Israel Studies at Brandeis University. Her research focuses on the intersection of religion and gender in the Israeli public sphere, as well as the politics of Israeli popular culture. This comes together in a book manuscript she's currently working on about gender segregation in the Israeli public sphere as well as her work on Israeli TV. This is the first time that we've shared a public talk on the podcast, and hopefully not the last. I think that a podcast doesn't have to be just a virtual forum, it can also be a platform for thinking about how events and activities in the scholarly realm can reach a broad audience. So I'm really glad to share it. The issues that Shana engages with here are really important as we think about Israeli culture in its global context. With TV serving as a fascinating starting point for talking about how Israel represents itself on the world stage, the place of religion in Israeli society, and how Israel relates to the global marketplace. We were so glad to have Shana join us here at UT, to have her for this exciting presentation, and also that we had a chance to talk about why these issues matter in a broad context. And I should mention that if you're interested in having Shana come and speak about these issues, and other related topics about popular culture, gender, and religion in modern and contemporary Israel, you can reach out to her by email, which we'll share in the show notes. I hope that you enjoy listening to this episode, and stick around also for our conversation about the broad significance of these issues when we look to understand the history and representation of ultra-Orthodoxy and the place of Israel in our 21st century globalized world. So thanks for listening.
1: I got into Israeli television because I wanted to learn Hebrew better, and I started watching Israeli television, and I started noticing that similar to what was happening in America with conversations about representation, themes, who was on TV, that that conversation was happening in Israel as well. And I started thinking about what this might mean for Israel as a whole. But before we get into that... I want to talk a bit about the history of Israeli TV. When you look at the Zionist thinkers, they actually thought that film, that radio had potential for state building, that you could use basically as propaganda to make good citizens. And this is a belief that's shared by a lot of other people, right? Not just Zionists are thinking like this. But TV... The technology of TV in the 40s and the 50s as it's starting to develop is met with almost near universal disapproval in Israel. The labor Zionists don't like it. The ultra-Orthodox Jews don't like it. They see it as bourgeoisie, as corrupting, as decadent, and it has almost no, no value, basically, in their eyes. And because of this, Israel is actually one of the last countries in the Middle East to get television. Israel does not have television until 1968, right? which is really late for the region. Just to give you a sense, Jordan has TV in 1956, so over 10 years earlier, and Egypt in 1960. There is one channel, one state-run channel in Israel until the mid-'80s. And then there is a second channel. And it's not until the mid-'90s that there is multi-channel cable. So what I'm gonna talk about today is made even more interesting by the fact that this industry lagged behind for so long in comparison with the rest of the world. I remember once I was talking with a friend who studies um, post-Soviet states and culture, and she told me that even Yugoslavia, when it existed, had three channels in the 80s, right? So it's really interesting to think about sort of Israel being behind, so to speak. And of course, in the 90s, when you get cable television, you have more airwaves to fill. You have more content. You need more programs. And at the same time, in the 90s in Israel, you have, some people call it post-Zionism. Some people call it a maturation of a state, breakdown of old narratives. Um, You have the Oslo peace process, but you have a wave of serious conversations about what Israel is, how Israel sees itself and who should be able to tell Israel's story so you start to see starts on film but it goes to television also more uh, minorities on Israeli c- cinema and television and also making Israeli cinema and television and both those parts are really important in order to tell good stories about minority communities right and Israel is no different here you need people from those minority communities who have a sense of authenticity, who know how to speak about those cultures. So while previously you would see shows that focused on Ashkenazi, so Jews from European land, secular Jews living their lives, let's say, in Tel Aviv, you start to see shows about religious Israelis um, of different kinds, Arab Israelis, Israeli Palestinians, Russian-speaking Jews, etc. And when I talk today about ultra-Orthodox Jews, it's important to remember that this is only one part of that story of diversity. And, of course, this mirrors, as I've said, and as we you are probably know, developments in America as well. Not just diversity within a market, but also a global market. What does this global market for television mean, and how does it affect the content itself? Some of you have some of you heard of Fauda or maybe watched Fauda. It's a show about an Israeli counterterrorism unit that was picked up by Netflix. When I interviewed Israeli producers, they told me when they pitch shows to networks, Israeli networks, the networks ask them, how is this going to sell abroad? Israel is a small country. A lot of the people in Israel don't watch television or claim not to watch television or don't watch it in Hebrew This may be changing, but Russian-speaking Jews tend to watch in Russian. Palestinian Israelis tend to watch Arabic programming, right? So obviously, the world is a lot bigger. And he called this the Fauda effect. And of course, if you're always thinking about how this will sell, not just in Israel, but in the world, that's going to affect the kind of shows that you make. Again, this is an overgeneralization, but to some extent, television is more commercial than film, especially in a place like Israel, Well, there's a lot of state funding for film, but there's controversy there. That's another story. So I want to go to talk now about ultra-Orthodox Jews and who they are. Sometimes you'll hear the term Haredim, which is the Hebrew term, which literally means trembling, sort of like shakers. For those of you who know your American religious history, it's the same idea, right you're trembling before god so to speak you're so infused with god's love that you tremble at his sight or her sight in english you'll hear a bunch of different terms sometimes you'll hear ultra orthodox there's been a move to say fervently orthodox i would say the two defining characteristics and these are obviously broad generalizations are they see themselves as following jewish law strictly especially the Sabbath, keeping kosher, living a modest way of life, especially in terms of dress, but also to some extent reject secular culture and live what I would say an enclave life. Different schools, different social lives, different neighborhoods, etc. They have their own social institutions. And what I'm saying now applies to not just Israel, but all over. There are ultra-orthodox populations in New York, um, in Baltimore, in London in smaller populations across the world, but we're speaking mainly about Israel. Generally speaking, men and women have different social spheres, that is with the exception of family life. And even though historically, this movement comes from Europe, we start to see a growing number of Jews from Arab and Islamic lands, Mizrahi Jews, who are starting to adopt or be part of this ultra-Orthodox society. Politically, there is a small minority that's anti-Zionist that actively agitates against the state of Israel, but that's a very small minority. The vast majority, they may not support the state of Israel in terms of seeing it as the ideal homeland for the Jewish people, but they don't necessarily have an issue with its government and participate in the government, vote in elections, etc., and what's important, I think, and this is actually, I think, the most important thing to know about ultra-orthodox Jews, is that it's a kind of modernity. You'll sometimes see ways of talking that I talk about medieval ways of life or whatnot. It's actually not true. Ultra-orthodox Judaism is a doubling down. It's a conscious observing of tradition. If you think of the different Jewish movements as a response to different question right? The issue is we don't have a state, right? So let's become Zionists. The issue is with Judaism and modernity is that we need to update our religion to make it fit modern times, right? That's what Reform Judaism is going to say. Ultra-Orthodox Judaism is going to say we need to double down on tradition. Nothing's going to change. So that's what's important. That's what's paradoxical about this. Ultra-Orthodox Jews, sometimes even historians, will say They represent a chain unbroken. Nothing has changed. Well, actually, a lot has changed. And their way of thinking and their way of living is actually quite new. That isn't to say that people didn't observe Jewish law. They have for a long time. But this self-conscious way of doing it in which they're defending their way of life against assimilators, etc., that's what's new. And that's what I think is interesting. There's no one way to be ultra-Orthodox. There's dozens and dozens and dozens of subgroups. Um, There's Hasidic versus not Hasidic. There's different rabbis that people follow. Some tend to be more integrated with Israeli society, some less so. Um, It's about one out of every nine or so Israelis. They tend to have more children than the general Israeli population. However, those rates have have actually fallen, and uh, we can think about sort of where these children will end up in the spectrum. Okay, so taking all of that, when we start thinking about TV and visual culture, if we think about how ultra-Orthodox Jews are portrayed, if they were portrayed at all, they were a laughing stock. This is um, a series of movies called Two Kuni Level. The first one is in the 60s. The later ones are the 70s and 80s. Um, it's actually based on a Yiddish story. There's one where he's in Tel Aviv. There's one where he goes to Cairo, hence the pyramids. But they're basically in this, they're the antithesis of the new Jew. If we think about Zionism, right, we think there's this idea that the Zionist Jew, the Sabra, he, and it's always a he, is strong, he fights for his homeland, he's not part of this meek diaspora tradition, well, the ultra-Orthodox Jew is the foil of that. So these are comic, they're one-dimensional, and they're not sort of taken seriously, if they appear at all. Uh, They're often feminized, as opposed to the new Jew is sort of hyper-masculine, and it's a symbol of what the Zionists left behind. And of course, in American culture, that is indeed Woody Allen from Annie Hall, right, the Haredi Jew symbolizes the sort of failure to assimilate. In this, he's meeting his non-Jewish partner's family. And in his anxiety, even though he's an assimilated American Jew, he basically has this fever dream where he imagines himself as an ultra-Orthodox Jew. The language is really visual. And the idea is that despite his best efforts, he can't assimilate right he's always going to be this hasid right or this Haredi jew but as i said this dichotomy starts to break down in the 90s and in the 2000s and we start to see an interest in different kinds of israelis lives television shows start hiring people both to write and to star especially with religious jews they will often hire consultants to make sure that there is a sense of authenticity because they have, a, they want to represent this culture authentically, right, and not play it for jokes, so to speak, like it had been before. One of the first shows that does this is a show called in Hebrew Merchak Nigia, in English A Touch Away. Um, it's from 2006, 2007. It is set in Benayehouk, which is right outside of Tel Aviv, which is an ultra-orthodox neighborhood. It is about a Russian guy and a Haredi girl, and it's a Romeo and Juliet story. What's interesting is that there are two sort of others in this film or in this TV series, right? You have the Russian-speaking Jewish community and the Haredi community, and they're sort of put (laughs) with each other. Uh, This is very much on purpose. This was actually funded by a project of the Avi Hai Foundation, which is a Jewish foundation that supports all sorts of sort of coexistence, multicultural events. And part of the idea with this is that Israelis live in a pretty segregated society, right? Neighborhoods tend to be secular or Arab or religious Zionist or whatnot. Maybe if we put these people's stories on a television show they're more likely to sort of take them seriously or think about them, which is really interesting, right? There are similar series and studies in America from social scientists. If we see either negative portrayals or positive portrayals, right, of different minority groups on television, does that affect people's perceptions? Does it affect their voting patterns? Um, It's an interesting question to think about. And if you were a funder, right, is this something you would wanna fund, right, to try and make changes in society? What's interesting about this, just from a cinematic point of view, right, is that the ultra-Orthodox lifestyle is sort of in these sepia tones. It's very quiet. While the Russian family is loud, there's lots of colors, there's lots of music. So there's this interesting contrast set up um, that will continue or somewhat be challenged by things as we go along. So when we think about, when I think about these sort of three modes, right, of ultra-Orthodox presentation... I think about, one, we're just like you. And this is what I, this is what this, a touch away in shows like Schtissel are trying to do. We, the ultra-Orthodox Jews, we're just like you Israelis, are you viewers? The second mode is we're better than you. And I'll explain what that and what I mean. And the third mode is, I would say dystopia, or something is wrong. I'm still playing with how to think about the third one. I don't want to say we're worse than you because it's not quite what it's doing, but maybe that's what I'll go with. I assume a lot of you have seen Schtissel or at least some of you. I'm seeing some people nod. If you haven't, it's excellent. Um, It's on Netflix. It is about a ultra-Orthodox family living in Jerusalem, putting together their life back together after the matriarch of the family passes away. And, you know, Schtissel... It's really about a family drama. It's set with an ultra-Orthodox family, but the things that happen, getting on with your life, love, father-son tension, et cetera, are things that happen in any society. And I think that's part of its appeal. We're just like you. We have family drama. We fall in love. Romance plays a large role in all of this. My favorite sort of quote about Stissel is they interviewed um, Dove Glickman, who plays Shalom. He's the patriarch of the family. They said, you know, what's your motivation? What do you think about when you play Sholem? And he said, for me, Schistel is like the Sopranos. And except instead of violence, there's Cholent, which is this like (laughs) Jewish stew that Haredi Jews tend to eat on Shabbat. So I actually think, so it's funny because he's a funny guy, but I actually think there's something very deep there. And how he thinks about families and violence and trauma and how it's sublimated. But Stitl, you know, what's fascinating is that it has become hugely popular in America. We don't know how many people watched it. Netflix won't tell us. But you know, the Jewish community in New York and other places had, has organized these speaking tours of the actors from Schitl that have had like thousands of people show up. I have a friend who is a rabbi um, who works in interfaith work in St. Louis. And she met with a group of Catholic priests and they were like, oh, oh, you're a rabbi. Tell us about Schtitzel. We've all been watching it. Um, so it's really interesting to think about why that is. I was reading with the, one of the people who put on the Schtitzel event in New York where thousands of people came and he said putting on this event was harder than putting on the event where Obama spoke in terms of people calling every day for tickets, all the drama, all the publicity, etc. So it's this really interesting mix of what I would say radical particularity, this family that's represented very accurately, and radical universality. You feel like you get it. You feel like you're part of it. What's interesting is that it really focuses on what I would say the sort of Haredi middle class that I a group of Haredi Israelis who are starting to live like who want to live lives like the rest of Israelis. They want to have middle class values, they want to take vacations, They wanna have a certain way of life. And in that comes a certain set of values that the rest of us as non haridim can recognize. And one of those key values, of course, is romance and the search for love. And that plays a large role in this as well. So one of the things I mentioned earlier is that ultra-Orthodox Jews are historically an Ashkenazi phenomenon. It's a movement that starts largely in Eastern Europe But today in Israel, we start to see more and more Mizrahi Jews, Jews from Arab and Islamic lands, um, Jews who immigrated from places like Iraq and Yemen, start to take on an ultra-Orthodox lifestyle. There's a lot of interesting politics that come along with that. The Shas party, which creates the best political ads in Israel, regardless of what you think about their politics, comes out of this. And also a really interesting cultural movement as well. And here, I want to go into the second sort of mode, and that's the we're better than you. I want to do that by talking about a show called Shabab Nikim. Uh, Shabab Nikim, it's actually an Arab word originally, as so you can probably hear, means sort of like bums. In Hebrew today, it's generally referred to the non-elite of ultra-Orthodox men, teenagers, young adults, who instead of spending all day learning like they should— are hanging out and having a good time. So, this show is sort of like an entourage esque show, and it follows these four guys as in their hijinks as they sort of live the high life in Jerusalem. This show, it's the antithesis of what we saw before, right? Because the fact that Haredi Jews could be sex symbols or heartthrobs is completely antithetical to some of the ideas we were thinking about earlier. There's a scene in the first episode where they're actually playing football in gone Soccer, American football with American guys, which is hilarious for many reasons, if you know Jerusalem well. And there's a point where they say, don't pay attention to them. We're the story now. Like, we're what's going on. We're what's important in Jerusalem. If you know your Israeli celebrities well, there's a brief shot of Yehuda Levy in, um, in this clip that was shown. Yehuda Levy is like, a Brad Pitt-level type figure. In the series, he plays a cameo of himself. They actually go to get suits um, in a Brooks Brothers. There's no Brooks Brothers in Israel, I checked, but they call it Brooks Brothers, which is funny. If you know anything about Israeli culture, you probably know that it's pretty informal. People are not usually so dressed up. It's pretty laid back. And he and Yehuda Levy runs into these Haredi guys in this fancy, fancy suit store, Right? And first of all, they recognize him. They know exactly who he is. So they're paying attention to celebrities. And Yehuda Levy says, This is why I love you guys. Everyone else, they're so casual. You Haredi guys, you care about style. You care about nice things. You know your suits need to look good. And I really respect you. Right? And that's the cameo that's there. It's fascinating to think about, you know, we do all these things better than you, right? The fact that they're funny is a huge part of this. Remember I mentioned the sepia tones and sort of the sadness that comes with a lot of these portrayals? And even Stiesel does it, right? There's not always a lot of talking. Everyone's kind of gloomy. This show reverses that. It's funny. It's quick-paced. And it's... Because it's really challenging this sort of narrative. And another thing is that the majority of the characters on Shabab Nikim come from this Mizrahi Haredi world—they're Jews who have heritage right from the Arab and Islamic lands. At this point, they've largely born in Israel, and they—one of the sh- things the show does really interestingly—is challenge some of the racism and discrimination within the ultra-orthodox world. For example, we see Gora Alfi, who's another famous sort of Israeli comedian. He doesn't call himself a matchmaker; he calls himself a a what is it like a relationships agent because he only does sort of elite fancy matches. One of the Mizrahi students wants to be set up with Devorah, the sort of fancy Ashkenazi girl. And he's like, no, 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 you can't go out with her. And he actually, he calls her a Frank, which is sort of an old school derogatory word for a French speaking Jew from Northern Africa. So it challenges some of these racism and some of these issues that come up in the ultra-Orthodox world in a really interesting way. And of course, and this is and this is what comes up, right? Is This is something cool. This is something interesting. Everyone wants to be part of it. Um, and, and there's even a character in the show who's sort of a chronic Haredi chaser, uh, a secular woman whose job it is, not job, whose role in life is sort of to perpetually go out with Haredi guys and sort of take them to the dark side, which is <laughs> interesting. So there's a lot to say about Shabab Nikim and what's going on. But I want to go to this third trend of sort of of dystopia and shows that take us in a different direction entirely. To a large extent, the first two genres, they don't really deal with politics. They do a little bit. but They don't deal with um, sort of the controversies in Israeli society about religion and state, about army service, about anything that was sort of discussed in the last election directly. That's very much on purpose, right? Because they want to personalize. But recently, we've seen a couple of shows that challenge this. And one that's really interesting is a show called Autonomies, which is actually a dystopia set 30 years in the future, where there's a civil war that results in a secular state and a religious state run completely by Jewish law. And in like any dystopia, it's a sort of political commentary of how things could progress if they keep going. If you think of any of the conversations like what happens in Handmaid's Tale... It's a similar sort of thing. The idea is, and you'll see this play out, and again, family plays a large role, is that there's a child who was thought dead, who is apparently no longer, who lives with a secular family, and they want to take her back. This is dark. This is exploring, I would say, some of the huge, the biggest challenges that Israel sees itself as having, tensions between religion and state, who should be in control, who should not be. Could there be a civil war that leads to physically different states and different, as I say, autonomies, which is the name of the show. The ultra-Orthodox state speaks Yiddish. But this is very different, right? There's no dream of coexistence. There's no reaching across the aisle, right? In fact, the idea is actually the exact opposite, that there's this reality which Israel is maybe heading towards in which there are literally different societies for religious and secular. And I also would put our boys into this category as well. Right. So Our Boys, which is actually playing now on HBO, is a phenomenal, really interesting show. It's about the events of 2014. Three Jewish boys were kidnapped. They were found dead. In retaliation, a group of um, three Jewish boys kidnapped a Palestinian teenager and killed him. The events of that summer are brutal. They're very sensitive. It sparked sort of a war in Gaza that happened later that summer. And for a lot of Israelis and Palestinians, really represents one of the darkest times in their history. Uh, The show has attracted a lot of controversy. There have been calls to boycott it. Netanyahu called it anti-Semitic. It focuses largely on the kidnapping of the Palestinian teenager. And what's interesting for me, for someone who's interested in religion, is that it goes deeply into the world of the kidnappers who come from this Mizrahi ultra-Orthodox world. They they live sort of on the fringes, right, of society. It's hard for them to get accepted into the best yeshivas, into the best schools. Um, They face a lot of sort of extremist messaging and they don't always know how to handle it. The main Shabak, sort of the main FBI investigator, Shimon or Simon, is actually a former ultra-orthodox Jew. He's a composite character, but he himself, through this, wrestles with religion, loyalty, family. And the show is not, it's not just saying this is all bad, this whole society needs to be thrown out, but thinking really seriously about the darker elements of religious society in Israel, what's Jewish, what's not, and who's included. There's actually a great essay by Emily Nussbaum, who's a TV critic for The New Yorker, and she talks about the economics of empathy in this. Who gets our empathy? Who doesn't? And of course, the title, Our Boys, points to that, right? Who's included in this collective? Who's not? Et cetera. So, you know, there are so many other things I could talk about where I think things are going. Um, there an, is an American adaptation of Stissel theoretically happening. These things can take a long time. It will be really fascinating to see how Jerusalem is translated to a neighborhood in Brooklyn, like they say they're going to do. I would love personally for there to be more ultra-Orthodox female characters. There are some. I don't think we've seen enough. But no matter what, it should be interesting. Um, I thank you all for coming, and I'm happy to take questions.
0: So we didn't record the Q&A, unfortunately, but I did get a chance to sit down with Shana and chat with her about these fascinating issues and why they matter. Shayna, thanks so much, first of all, for joining us here at UT for this really interesting presentation. Uh, I was hoping that we could talk about it a bit more in depth and about why why all of these issues are important for thinking about a range of uh, of social and uh, and cultural questions as they relate to Israel, Jewish history, and broader uh, and broader issues. And so, I think the first thing that maybe I think that we can start out with is thinking about why TV. In, in your presentation, you talked about the history of TV in Israel, uh, and you talked about uh, a range of Israeli TV shows. Do you maybe want to say something about what about TV sparks your interest and you know, how you came to it maybe, uh, but also why this is a set of issues that opens up bigger questions.
1: Right. So, what's for me, what's interesting about TV is not just what's on the screen, which is obviously fascinating, the content, the programs, but also that TV, uh, even more than film, is an inherently commercial industry, and that it's there to make money and it's there to be sold. So, for every TV show that you see, there is an army of people producing it, not acting, editing, and then selling the show, selling the format, selling the international rights. And especially for Israeli television, which has become a force on the global market, looking at those relationships that happen sort of off screen is a really interesting way to think about how Israel relates to the world around itself and how it sells itself. And again, that's not just on the shows, but the relationships that come out. So the arrangement, as I mentioned, um, for HBO to make a show, Our Boys, for example, um, but use an Israeli production team, right? What does that say about how Israel relates to the world, how Israel relates to America, et cetera? Um, and of course, also by sheer number. A lot more people watch TV than cinema or certain movies. And the messages that people are receiving or internalizing and how they think about them is a really interesting way to think about how Israel is perceived the sort of the world over.
0: So you think that TV is useful in terms of seeing the representation of Israel and Israeli culture.
1: Yes. And now that Israeli TV is a popular format um, around the world, there's more of a self-consciousness than before, right? Um, One of the things I mentioned, right, was something called the Fauda effect, which is what a producer explained to me as, is that when you pitch a show um, in Israel, the studios, the networks, they want to know not just how the show will sell in Israel, but globally, uh, what's interesting about this is that you might think that only shows like FAUDA, which are about terrorists and counter-terrorists, would be popular, but we've actually seen that there is also a market for shows that are not like that at all. For example, the shows I talked about today, which are about ultra-Orthodox Jews, which are in some ways the polar opposite, shows like Schtissel and whatnot. So what is popular is not necessarily what is the most always universal, so to speak, which is what's really, I think, interesting about these and how these shows play out.
0: Right. Uh, So I I guess a follow-up issue with that is in what ways do you think that looking at Israeli TV can help us to better understand uh, broader issues within Israeli society, especially because so much of it is really produced with an eye towards the outside world. And global consumption as opposed to the local Israeli TV market, which as you talked about is highly fragmented and just generally smaller than the global market.
1: So one not even just pay attention, right, to who's portrayed? Who are the actors on screen? Where do they come from? What are their stories, right? Who's represented? But of course like with any piece of art, everything on television is a decision, right? Every time there's a close-up, every time there's a tracking shot or whatever, that's a decision that was made. And we can think about those decisions to understand about Israeli society, even the location. Shows that are set in Jerusalem instead of Tel Aviv, where the sort of standard or where shows about more secular Jews tended to be shot. Um, those can all tell us about Israeli society and what's at the center and what's at the periphery, because those are all rapidly changing. Uh, we can also see how much explanation they put in, right? Are they trying to explain themselves to a larger audience? Are they trying to offer you a peek inside a society? Uh And also, what's presented as Israeli? Are these presented as mainstream stories? Are these presented as stories from the fringe? Because I think what we see in Israeli television the same way we see maybe in American television is that who is an Israeli – Uh, is changing, right? It's not automatically anymore, right, a secular Ashkenazi army veteran, right, like sort of the stereotype of what might see in Fauda. But with shows like Arab Labor or Shabab Nikim, we see a new kind of Israeli, maybe not so new, but new on the screen.
0: So so I think that part of what you're saying here, and I think that this is part of a bigger trend in terms of uh, the production of media and the Diversification of societies, not just in Israel but elsewhere too, is the way in which the representation of various groups—whether we're talking about Palestinian Arabs or ultra-Orthodox Jews or you know, Mizrahim—you know—going beyond the standard sort of, you know, what is it, white Ashkenazi sopper with protectia,
1: right? The uh, Israeli wasp,
0: right? Yeah. Right. But go, but as the 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 people who are being represented on screen expand, it creates a, a more diverse and colorful cast of characters for people to watch and to identify with as well and i think that you know we see this in you know the growth of tv shows like blackish in america and, and so on just that what is interesting here is that the developments in israel are part of a more global trend
1: Right, exactly, and of course, the same sort of debates about how a minority represents itself doesn't it only show the good. To what extent can it critique? All those conversations that happen around a show like Blackish or Atlanta happen in a different way, but in the same. Same kind of discussion, same kind of values. When you have a show, let's say like Arab Labor, which is about an Israeli Palestinian family in East Jerusalem, um, which Syed Kishua has actually said he regrets some of the satirical elements because people, I don't know, maybe didn't realize it was satire. This is not a direct quote, right? But he has a whole column where he talks about when he realized Avigdor Lieberman was a fan of Arab Labor, which is this satirical show, um, he felt that he had failed. Um, And to what extent do you, you know, be part of mainstream society to critique it, etc.? These are questions that any show um, struggles with. And we
0: see those struggles in Israeli society as well. I mean, I guess one related issue here is about how Israel is portrayed and understood in the wider world in as much as these are TV shows that are not just being watched by Israelis and certainly not just by Jews. And so part of what's interesting about the increase in the amount of Israeli TV, uh, which is available for viewing within the global TV marketplace, is that this is a way for people to view and understand Israel in a range of ways uh, that previously had not been available.
1: Right. And, you st- and you're starting to see politicians talking about this Israeli TV, either for good or for bad, right? Lior Raz, the star of, of Fauda, spoke at AIPAC, Okay, and has become part of this Hasbara narrative. Now, whether or not Leor Raz is doing it for the money, or he, you know, wants to help Israel's image, right? We can argue about. But it's interesting that he's part of that. And on the flip side, we have a show like Our Boys, right, which has been hugely criticized within Israel, um, because it focuses on the murder of the Palestinian teenager. You have Benjamin Netanyahu calling the show anti-Semitic, right? That it should be boycotted. Right, you can't separate the fact that Channel Twelve, the show that the channel that showed it in Israel, is also one of the main channels investigating, right, and releasing a lot of the corruption scandals. But even the fact that he thought that that would score him political points and you know say about a TV show, right, we should boycott this Israeli-made TV show because it's anti-Semitic, is really interesting to me. Not because I think it's a valid critique per se, but because it has traction or that there's concern. Right about Israel's image on these television shows.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that is interesting because it's part of this bigger transformation of the media landscape. Uh, you talk about how in Israel there was no TV before 1968, which is a really kind of fascinating, mm-hmm. you know, fascinating sort uh, of historical fact. But also just you know, reflects a sense of the the nature of media in Israel and elsewhere too, where for decades TV was the joke, you know, and film was where it was at. And in a lot of ways, it's kind of been turned on its head.
1: Right. And it's also a lot about government control. Um, in Israel, television, there was one channel. There was also, I should say, there was a little bit of TV before 1968. There were some experiments with educational television. But when we talk about television as we know it, um, the IBA, right, Israel Broadcast Authority's channel started in 1968 uh, and it was state regulated, And like anything in Israel, it was state regulated and controlled largely by the Labor Party, right, because those were the elite. Um, As that starts to deregulate, right, starting in the 80s and the 90s, we see the entry of commercial interests. And what's interesting to me in Israel's transition from a more socialist leaning to a more capitalist leaning state, the TV industry also plays a role in that as well really the role of government and the declining role of government is part of the story of that. And for me, that's really interesting.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think uh, that there's a lot that we could talk about here, about why uh, TV has risen to such prominence in Israel and so on. But I I really wanna focus on this question of the Haredim, Mm -hmm. of the ultra-Orthodox, in as much as, you know, as you put it, black is the new black. Why do you think that the Haredim are so prominent in terms of representations of Israel in the TV medium?
1: So I think for a couple of reasons. One is that visually, it's very gripping, especially for male Haridim. They look different. They dress different. So like, unless, let's say, like Mizrahi Jews, right, which due to large amounts of intermarriage between Mizrahi and Ashkenazi Jews and sort of melding of these cultures, it's not necessarily as easy to visually distinguish one from the other. Um, with Haredi Jews, there's a stark visual language that you can tap into. I also think it's an internal other. Unlike, let's say, like the issue of the Palestinians, this is an other that's still Jewish. And when you explore this other, you're also asking questions about your own Jewish identity. And here I'm obviously speaking for the Jewish Israeli majority. So in some ways, it's almost a safer other because it's still part of this Jewish collective. And I think for so long, because it was the antithesis of the sort of new Jew, right? You have the old Haredi Jew who is living in an exilic way of life and, you know, clings to tradition, and that's opposite to the new Israeli Sabra. Given that those ideas have, I don't want to say fully collapsed, but have definitely shifted, especially with a growing interest in religion in Israeli society, the Haredim are a natural place to turn.
0: Mm-hmm. I think that it's a reflection of the fact that the Haredim are a major part of Israeli society. Correct.
1: Correct. Um, definitely. And there is a larger and larger number of Israeli Haredim who are interested in being part of Israeli wider Israeli society and see themselves as part of wider Israeli society. Uh and that plays a role not just in employment, but also in the cultural world as well.
0: Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that it's interesting because it, it reminds me of a whole range of of issues. Uh, we did the episode uh, with David Beal a while back where we talked about his, uh, you know, the history of Hasidim, of uh, mm-hmm. Hasidism. Uh, and one of the questions that we talked about then was why Hasidim are of great interest. And part of the question there was ways in which This particular set of Jews represents a kind of a an internal other with which many Jews are fascinated. And I think that this is also true in terms of the question of Haredium on TV. Uh, I think that there is a fascination with this group of people that are broadly speaking not that well understood by the general public. And I think maybe even the case among some of the TV producers. Uh, though you know a lot more about that than I do, Uh, I think that there is this aspect of um, kind of an Orientalism within it.
1: I think, right, so I think there is an awareness of that delicate balance of not wanting to be entirely voyeuristic, right, like offering a peep in. And I think if you look at some of the earlier shows, especially in cinema, less so in television, you see some of that voyeurism, like we want to look inside this hidden society, show you all their secrets, et cetera. I think because there are many more insiders now involved, um, there's less of that, um, but it's still definitely something that's discussed, um, the sort of Orientalist gaze and to what extent this plays a role in all of this. I also think specifically for Hasidim, there is some strains of Hasidic thought are really popular in Israel way beyond the Hasidic public, and that's really Rebbe Nachman. Um, and to some extent, Chabad philosophy as well. Right. But if you think of Rebbi Nachman and the ideas of seeking, of finding yourself that are speak very well to a modern population, and a lot of artists especially are actually really drawn to Rebbi Nachman, some of them have actually become Hasidic. Um, Shuli Rand is probably the most famous of that. But even among those who haven't, they still will go to Uman. Po- I was just thinking, you know, post pictures of themselves learning um. Uh, the maharan, like, uh, you know, Rabbi Nachman's teaching. And so this interest in seeking and sort of new age spirituality and some aspects of Hasidut meld very well together. And we see that in the entertainment industry in Israel, which a lot of celebrities are becoming more interested in Judaism. Um, And that, of course, plays a role in the subjects and the
0: shows that they make as well. Right. But correct me if I'm wrong. uh, Would you say that most of the representations of ultra-Orthodox Jews of Haredim Honest reality TV, is not Hasidic Judaism, but more um, the Misnagdic approach, you know, sort of the, you know, with, with the focus on learning, you know, studying, or or, or am I sort of off the mark here?
1: Well, I think in general, these worlds are much more mixed than they were even, let's say, 50 years ago. And so even in the Hasidic world, there are Hasidic yeshivas and things like that. I would say that their most shows are either about the Sephardi, and I actually think that's where the, some of the most interesting shows are coming from, or actually the Hasidim, because that, again, is sort of more easily, the language for that is there in the culture. The side locks, the ecstatic sort of worship, et cetera. And also because, again, not every kind of Hasidim, but right, a lot of Hasidic thought lends itself to a spiritual-seeking sort of discourse that draws in I think, a lot of more secular viewers. But it's usually not, and this is very on purpose, it's usually not a specific sect. Mm -hmm. Um, It's usually sort of amalgamation because they don't necessarily want to make it about the Vizhenitsar or the Bobov or et cetera. Um, There was an exception. There was a show, which I loved, called Kathmandu about a Chabad house in Nepal. Um, And it's sort of this fictional series about a Chabad couple in Nepal. Um, But that's an exception, that it was about really a specific
0: group. Right, right. I mean, I think that that's part of something that happens with, you know, the production for TV and film in general, right? right. That you have the creation of composite characters, right. just the same way you have a composite religion, in a way, because right. the truth is that very few viewers will understand the difference between, you know, this Hasidic dynasty and that Hasidic dynasty, right. or even just the distinction between between Hasidic Jews and the Misnagdim. Right. I, I think that, that part of what's interesting about the representation of ultra-Orthodox Jews is that on the one hand, this is a, a portal through which people come to understand ultra-Orthodoxy you know, to a limited extent. But it's also an arena where this image is being crafted and curated of a unified amalgamation of different aspects of a very diverse culture.
1: Yes, definitely. Even if you look at a show like Stissel, right, their interests are bourgeoisie. And I don't necessarily mean that in a bad way, but the search for meaning, finding love, um, moving on, right? They are not—I think they're late modern Western culture. We know that, you know, ideas of romantic love aren't necessarily— Compatible with traditional Hasidic notions of marrying, right, or of semi-arranged marriages. This idea for personal meaning, right, it's a very Western idea. And so, right, so in, in shows like Schistel, right, they're recognizable because they map on to pretty standard Western sort of TV narratives. Um, of course, you know, not all Haridim, not all Hasidim, um, fall into that category. And it's definitely an element of self-creation and self-presentation that collapses differences.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think one thing that's very interesting about this whole phenomenon is that I think that there is this fascination, broadly speaking, with fundamentalist religion. Mm-hmm. And whether we're looking at these Israeli TV shows or The Handmaid's Tale, you know, just to give one example, I think that they is a really interesting issue here, which is, you know, why are people fascinated with fundamentalism, and in what ways does the representation of fundamentalist religion, uh, however we understand it, you know, how how is this representation on TV help people to better understand religion, on the one hand, and also how does it misconstrue? The realities of these societies, and of course, Gilead in, in The Handmaid's Tale is entirely, you know, fictional. And you know, these Israeli TV shows that represent uh, ultra orthodox Judaism in Israel, you know, they're based to some extent on uh, the real life practices of ultra orthodox Jews. But it just kind of speaks to this question of you know, how the public understands fundamentalism and sometimes doesn't really grasp the nature. For instance, you talked about how ultra-Orthodox Judaism is actually a fundamentally modern phenomenon. Uh, a lot of people tend to think of it as a throwback to medieval times or something like that. And so part of this whole set of issues is the way in which these TV shows have the capability to create empathy on the one hand, but also to sort of sow sort of misinformation on the other.
1: Right, and I think that's why we see a wave of shows that are starting to explore some of the darker sides of Haredi society, right? Because a show like Schissel, while it is wonderful, does not get into the larger politics of separation of, you know, gender segregation in the public sphere, right? Which was a controversy in Israel this summer, um, ultra-Orthodox political parties. And there is a lot of discussion and a lot of concern about these issues, And I think what some of these newer shows are trying to do, um, especially in Our Boys and also I mentioned Autonomies, Autonomio, are trying to explore some of the darker sides of Haredi life, of Haredi politics. They're avoiding a simple sort of everything is bad. Um, This is a repressive society in which people can't express themselves approach, something that you actually did see a bit in film in the 90s uh, and trying to take a more nuanced approach. But they are... I would say trying to put the political back in, in a large sense. What have these societies led to? What have they bred? You know, and as Israeli society shifts, um, you know, sort of what do we have to reckon with?
0: Right. So would you say then that if you think about the trajectory of the history of Haredim and the representation in Israeli film and TV, you, know, you talked about initially the Haredim were a joke. Mm-hmm. And then you have sort of these new, you have these newer TV shows like Stiesel, for instance, that represent them as being sort of a part of everyday life, uh, Mm -hmm. which Haredi Jews are within Israel. And then you talk about, you know, autonomies, for instance, uh, and this idea of, you know, what has been wrought, you know, what are the political consequences of the continued existence and the power of ultra-Orthodox Judaism within Israel? I mean, it seems to me it sounds a lot like this question of how Israeli society at large has grapple with the fact that ultra-Orthodox Judaism has become a powerful political force. You know, it's no longer just a a sideshow or something that was kind of on its way out, but it's something that's here to stay in a lot of ways. And I think that that's part of what's interesting here is that it represents this broader issue of the changes within Israeli culture.
1: Right. And there's this scene, right? And as I mentioned, there's a scene in Shabab Nikim in the first episode, right? Within the first, I would say, 15 minutes or so, in which they're talking about um, a certain issue and one of the guys says to the other, right? These yeshiva guys, we're the story now. Forget about everyone else, right? And it's a real recognition that this is not a fringe story anymore. You cannot talk about Israel anymore without a serious understanding of ultra-Orthodox Jews and the role that they play in society. And I think it's something we'll sort of see a continuation and a grappling with, and at the same time shows how distant the Palestinian issue is that for the sort of average Jewish Israeli, what they think about a lot more is issues of religion and state as we saw in the election. So I think that we'll see that reflected more and more on culture as well, especially as more. Religious people or people who came from religious Jewish communities enter the world of arts and culture, which is which is what we see now as
0: well. Right, in as much as some of the writers and the showrunners themselves are former Haredi Jews,
1: exactly. And if there aren't, the shows will hire either Haredi Jews, sort of on the margins, more modern ones, or former Haredi Jews to help them to make sure there's authenticity. Um, I heard lots of stories of training via voice app memos being passed back and forth. Stories of Michael Ohlone listening to tapes in Yiddish to make sure that he does pronunciation right, et cetera. But all these means that there's a lot more cultural exchange right. going on.
0: I mean, I think it's interesting you talk about um, authenticity, which mm-hmm. is something that I think that a lot of productions aim for, whether mm-hmm. we're talking about a historical period piece or something that deals with a minority group or or, or whatever. And it's interesting that you talk about the search for authenticity and the portrayal of ultra-Orthodox Jews when... When, as we know, ultra-Orthodoxy makes a claim to authenticity, historical authenticity, which we know is not exactly the case. You know, they claim to be the right. unadulterated, traditional, ultra-traditional Judaism, right? The chain of tradition unbroken by modernity. You know, of course, we know that this is not really the case. It's a modern phenomenon. It reflects modernity. You know, these people are not entirely cut off from the world, but there's this claim within Haredi Judaism in its various forms to being the real Judaism, which is why, you know, we talk about the attraction of ultra-Orthodoxy for Mizrahi Jews. Right. So, so, so what we see here is sort of these two kinds of searches for authenticity that I think are really fascinating as we try to understand the uh, the draw of authenticity within Israeli culture, quote unquote.
1: Right. So I think a lot of it is, one is paying attention to like details of representation. Um, if the ultra-Orthodox were a joke, right, like as we talked about before, you don't have to pay attention to how the hat sits um, how long the jacket is, how long a woman's skirt is, et cetera. And now when you take these subjects seriously, those are the details that people want to make sure are correct. So that's, I would say, a sort of basic level kind of authenticity. Um, you know, they want to make sure that it is, it seems real, so to speak. Of course, what's included in that and what's not included in that we could talk about. But I think you're right. And I think in terms of the Haredi claims right to being an authentic form of Judaism for Israelis who are again interested in religion, generally speaking, Jewish Israelis, if they they believe this, right? They believe, right, that if they want to go for an authentic Jewish practice, they need to sort of turn towards the Haredi world. We don't necessarily have the older generation of rebels who were steeped in tradition, the people like Bialik, who were thrown out of yeshiva, but who knew Jewish texts incredibly well. Um, We have a newer generation that didn't have that sort of education. And so when they want that authenticity, right, which again, in New age spirituality, the quest for self is huge. It's all about the search for an authentic self. They're gonna to turn to what they see as an authentic form of Judaism. And I think that's definitely a large part of the interest in Haredi culture and a Haredi society.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think um it's clear that there are different kinds of authenticity. Right. But but what is interesting is the way in which it is a powerful draw. In these different realms. And I, I think that that it's clear you know, from your presentation and from our conversation that to understand contemporary Israeli society, we need to understand the place of the Haredi Jews uh, mm-hmm. as a powerful political force, as a cultural force, a religious force. But then, of course, what's interesting about this as well is the way in which understanding Haredi Jews and Haredi Jewish culture helps us to understand bigger global issues that go beyond Israel. And this is one of these issues as well in terms of the globalization of Israeli TV and Israeli culture, that we have people from around the world who are watching these TV shows and perhaps learning the very first things that they know about Judaism from the representation of of Jews through this ultra-Orthodox lens.
1: Right. Uh, Definitely. And I've definitely gotten emails that attest to that. I think it speaks to a growing role of religion on on the global stage, right? There was an idea of the secularization thesis that religion would sort of fall away. Um, We know that's not true. We know that thesis is wrong. So I think in all forms of media, creative media, you're starting to see a really serious reckoning with this idea of religion. And of course, when you think of fundamentalism and you say the interest in cults, even though cult is a word academics don't like to use, right? Um, there, that's the garish, more extreme version of that. But it's a question of how we order our lives and how we make meaning. Right. right? These shows are not about theology. They're, I would say, a Durkheimian collective effervescence, people, you know, meaning-making um, way of thinking about religion. It's about the people involved. Right. Um. Yeah, these shows are not debating fine theological points.
0: No. No, but they are coming out alongside, as you mentioned, TV shows that relate to cults. You know, yes. like whether we're talking about um, what was that TV show that came out about the cult that was based in Oregon?
1: Uh, uh Wild Wild Country.
0: Yeah, that or like all the TV shows about Scientology. Right. Uh, et cetera. You know, it is interesting that we see this as part of a global phenomenon. And I think that part of what's really interesting about this topic and why I'm glad that 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 you could give this talk and we can talk about it is because I think that it represents one of a series of ways in which we can talk about Israel in a global context.
1: And I think that's really interesting. And also, even speaking of wild, wild country, right? I was like, well, this is a kibbutz, right? Um, Or kibbutz-like thinking, right? Of you set up a model society or things like that? Again, this is why it's so important to think of these things in a global context, that if you want to teach about a kibbutz or think about a kibbutz beyond the immediate context of the Israeli experiment. You talk about what it means to set up an ideal society and what happens when inconveniently there are locals there that you need to deal with. And that's not to draw an immediate comparison and say they're exactly the same thing. They're obviously not. But I think we can draw links between any sort of these utopian or utopian-leaning societies and help us learn more about um, how they think about themselves. And of course, at least from a cinematic point of view, right? The pleasure when everything goes wrong, mm-hmm. right? Which is the draw of wild, wild, the country. Not to mention that a lot of them were Jewish to begin with, which is an entirely separate conversation.
0: Right. Uh, yeah, so I, I I know we're like mostly out of time, um, but I want to sort of close out by thinking about the Fauda effect, okay. uh, which you've talked about a little bit. Right? This idea that basically Israeli TV shows when they're being pitched and conceived of uh, are thinking about the global market more so than the... The, the significantly smaller market of Israeli TV watchers. What interests me here is, you know, in what ways do you think that this phenomenon is reflective of bigger issues, bigger trends within Israeli society?
1: Right. So I think one of the most obvious one is high tech. in in high tech in Israel, the goal is to make an exit. You make your company, you develop your startup, and then you sell it to Google or McDonald's or whatever for a lot of money. Some and some of these deals are now in billions of dollars, and that's the measure of success. And wh- an exit might mean that your entire company transfers to San Francisco, right? The success is taken out, but that's the idea: is that it's 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 this approval from the outside world. And I still think even in realms where Israel is relatively successful, the entertainment industry. The high-tech industry, you can see this need for approval from the outside world that Israelis wanna they wanna feel normal. It's a similar thing with Eurovision, right? When Israel won Eurovision and then hosted it, Israel the Israelis want to feel like they're part of the community of nations. And I think this this approval is something that's really, really sought after, especially by Israelis who are not necessarily um, ob- religious or observant because they just want to be like everyone else. They want to live a life that's not constantly, you know, punctuated by conflict, right? Um, if you want to take the stereotypes of the Israelis who go to Berlin, um, I think those are some of the things going on. But you see a real want for, you know, the really standard Zionist idea of normalization, In the Zionist context, right? Not in the sort of Palestinian context, but in the context of wanting to be like anyone else.
0: So you think having TV shows on Netflix makes them feel like any other country?
1: Exactly. And if they can do it even better, that's even better. But it's a sign of recognition and a sign of we're part of this. We're part of the global community.
0: Right. I mean, I think for me, what's so striking about it is, like you said, this relationship, perhaps analogous, between the Israeli high-tech sector and the vision of getting bought out by the Googles and the Apples of the world. And the idea that you produce a TV show in Israel that will then get picked up by Netflix or Amazon uh, or get remade in an American context. And I think that, that that's very interesting as we think about the way that Israel, its people, its businesses, see themselves on the global stage.
1: Yeah, definitely. And especially with this HBO show where HBO put up the money up front and paid for a show that Israeli production companies would not be able to afford on their own mm-hmm. is really interesting. And I think my guess, right, is that I think we will start to see more shows like that, um, in which they're sort of ordered by these major companies. It'll be interesting to see if that's the next direction in which things go.
0: Right. Uh all right. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. I mean, uh, I guess one final just quick question, you know, is you know, if people want to watch some of these TV shows, what are one or two shows that you would recommend and where, where do people find them?
1: Right. So this is a, a constant challenge, but two shows that I'm going to plug that I think are lesser known. Um, one is a show I mentioned uh, earlier called A Touch Away or Merchak Negiah. It is from 2006, 2007. It's one of the first shows um, to deal with ultra-Orthodox Jews. And it's about a Romeo and Juliet type story of a Russian speaking immigrant, um, and a Haredi, uh, his Haredi neighbor, and they fall in love, and there's lots of drama. And I think it's really interesting, one, because it's one of the first, but also because it, makes interesting parallels between the Haredi population and the Russian-speaking population. And then the other one, which comes out of left fields entirely, is a show called Judah. Uh, I think it is still on Hulu about a Jewish vampire. It is wacky, sort of out of this world, and I think is a really interesting merger of sort of concerns about Jewishness, about boundaries, and um, Jewish relationship, especially to Eastern Europe, and exploring, you know, the very important question of how should a Jewish vampire conduct his life. So those are my two recommendations.
0: All right. Well, thanks again. Thank you. And thanks to you for listening to this episode. I should also mention that Shana's visit here at UT and her talk were sponsored by a range of groups, including the Israel Institute, the UT Schusterman Center for Jewish Studies, as well as the Center for Middle Eastern Studies, the Department of Radio, Television, and Film, and the Department of Religious Studies here. In any case, thanks for listening. I hope you have a chance to check out some of the shows that Shannon and I talked about today. And until next time, I'm Jason Lustig, and thanks for listening to Jewish History Matters.